although the videos have nothing to do with the sermon, that was pretty stupid. So... Stupid, which you just witnessed, according to the dictionary, is defined as lacking ordinary quickness and keenness of mind. You may also describe it as a few cards short of a full deck, not the brightest crayon in the box, or dumber than a box of rocks. I could actually go on quite a ways. I, I had about 300 of those. Oh, yes, I will, speaking of stupid... I will dismiss the young people. No, I was talking about myself, Whitney, not you. Yes, I forgot. That was an example, thank you, of me being stupid. Um, yes, we're going to dismiss the young people now for their children's experience. Uh, K through 5, a wonderful experience uh, just tailored for them. Of course, we have nursery care for the younger kids. All children are welcome to be here through the entirety of worship. Thank you for waving your arms um, and letting me know. All right, so I want to share a couple examples of human stupidity as we're going to talk about the myth, Christians are stupid. In 2004, an Australian man locked himself out of his house. Instead of finding a spare key, calling a locksmith, he went behind his house, climbed the back wall, got into the kitchen window, got stuck in the kitchen window, and while flailing around, turned on the water and ended up drowning in the kitchen sink. A local terrorist was planning to send a letter bomb to an unsuspecting target. Unfortunately, he didn't put enough postage on the package, and it came back returned to sender, because you always put a return address on your mail bomb. Excited about this mysterious package, he opened it, not remembering that he had recently sent a bomb, and was victim to his own crime. And finally, in 2002, a man trying to save money on fireworks, and, and the, the, the progress of stupidity in this story is, is just monumental. A man trying to save money on fireworks developed an ingenious plan. He would create his own fireworks by using the explosives inside of hand grenades, something we all keep in our basement. Not having a screwdriver or some type of pliers or other instruments to open said hand grenades, he decided to use the next best thing, a chainsaw. You can imagine there were indeed some fireworks on that night. I know it isn't nice to poke at people who have been killed, um, even if they were a few clowns short of a circus, but I wanted to show you some extreme examples of foolishness. I did that because there are those who view Christianity as foolish as what those people did. Christians, uh, what they believe and what they do, and, and they just laugh and they think that is pretty ridiculous. Tonight we're going to look at the myth, Christians are stupid, uh, and, and the, other, the, kind of the other way around that is all clever people are atheists. This is an all-too-common myth in our world, an argument that goes like this, the more educated you become, the less likely you are to be Christian. Tonight, we're going to work on busting this myth. Now, this is not a new myth. In fact, it's been around as long as Christianity has been around. In fact, in the early years, and you heard a little bit of it uh, last week, in the early years of Christianity, people viewed Christians as um, superstitious, uh, unintellectual, 
uh, very folksy, and just basically downright stupid. You can imagine because his early followers of Jesus Christ were fisher people, common people. Later, Christians believed and, and kind of espoused things like, we worship Jesus Christ, a man who is also God's son. They also said things like, Jesus died, but he rose from the dead. They also said things like, we eat the body of Christ and drink his blood. You can imagine that sounded pretty foolish. So are there smart Christians? If Peter had gone to Oxford, the apostle, would he have become an atheist? That's the question. Now, I don't think so. And, and I think that, looking back at history, there have always, always been intelligent, intellectual Christians. We have so many resources. We read from a few of them uh, last night, or, or last week, Ignatius, Origen, a few other, Justin Martyr, wonderfully uh, poetic, wonderfully intellectual Christians. Next week, when we talk about our Christians opposed to science and progress, we're actually going to talk about Christians who are scientists, Christians who uh, are big in the field of natural and um, social science. But tonight, I want to focus on writers, uh, something kind of close to my heart. So let's look at a few examples of creative and well-thought-of people. Howard Allen Francis O'Brien was born in an Irish Catholic family in the early 40s, uh, right here in the United States, in New Orleans. She, yes she, graduated from San Francisco State University, and although was on track to re, uh, receive a PhD from Berkeley, left school, returned to San Francisco to receive her MA, master's degree in creative write, uh, writing, and to teach. She had left the church and become a self-proclaimed atheist. It was soon after the death of her first daughter to leukemia, that she wrote the best-selling novel, Interview with a Vampire. Howard, who we know as Anne Rice, returned to the church in 1998. In her memoir, Called Out of Darkness, she writes, uh, in this beautiful, beautiful example of justifying grace, something we talked about with our uh, confirmation kids last week. In that moment of surrender, I let go of all the theological or social questions which had kept me from God for countless years. I simply let them go. There was a sense, profound and wordless, that if God knew everything, I did not have to know everything. And that in seeking to know everything, I'd been all my life missing the entire point. No social paradox, no historic disaster, no hideous record of injustice or misery, misery should keep me from God. No question of scriptural integrity, no torment over the fate of this or that atheist or gay friend, no worry for those condemned and ostracized by the church or by any other church should stand between me and him. The reason? It was magnificently simple. God knew how and why everything happened. God knew the disposition of every single soul. He wasn't going to let anything happen by accident. Nobody was going to hell by mistake. Rice has several best-selling novels. Of course, uh, many of them we know are about vampires and other supernatural creatures. But she's also penned novels about angels, Mary, and Jesus himself. She's not loved by all, but she's the mother of the modern supernatural genre. In 2010, she actually left the Roman Catholic Church, which she had gone back to, being unable to follow some doctrinal beliefs. But she still holds her faith in Christ. Recently, she wrote, My faith in Christ is central to my life. My conversion from a pessimistic atheist lost in a world I didn't understand to an optimistic believer in the universe 
in a, in a universe created and sustained by a loving God is crucial to me. Let's go to our second person, Joe. She was born in England and loved to write stories from a young age. She did well in school and went abroad to teach English as a second language in other countries. But things didn't quite go as she wanted them to. By 1993, she found herself alone, unemployed, and raising her infant daughter. She didn't, uh, or she, she recently then lost her number one supporter, her mother, and fell into a deep depression. That didn't stop her from writing. Five years later, an American publishing company would pick up the rights to her first novel, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. And the once impoverished J.K. Rowling would become a millionaire overnight. She would go on to win numerous awards for the Harry Potter series and rekindle a love of reading for both adults and children worldwide. Certain Christian groups have attacked Harry Potter since its original publication, but if you read the stories of Harry, Ron, Hermione, it's hard not to notice the themes of good versus evil, light versus dark, and ultimately the power of friendship and love overcoming all odds. It was by no mistake that Harry had to die and be resurrected to defeat he who shall not be named. Of her faith, J.K. writes, I was officially raised in the Church of England, but was actually more of a freak in my family. We didn't talk about religion in our home. My father didn't believe in anything, neither did my sister. My mother would incidentally visit the church, but mostly during Christmas. I was immensely curious. From the time I was 13 or 14, I went to church alone. I found it very interesting, all that was being said, and I believed in it. Then I went to university, became more critical, and got annoyed with the smugness of religious people, and I went to church less and less. Now, I'm glad to say, I'm at the point where I started. Yes, I believe, and yes, I go to church. Jack was born in Belfast, Northern Ireland, in 1898. He was a highly educated person and very, very intelligent. At the age of 15, he declared he was an atheist, citing anger with God for not existing. You can tell by the, that, that statement the kind of character of who we're talking about. He would later convert to Christianity. Jack taught at Magdalen College in Oxford for nearly 30 years. He also taught at Cambridge University in Magdalen College in Cambridge. He was thought of to be one of the finest minds of his generation, and he became one of the greatest literary, literary defenders of Christianity our faith has ever known. We know Jack as Clive Staple, Staple Lewis, or C.S. Lewis for short, author of the beloved children's series, The Chronicles of Narnia. Jack would write several novels and nonfiction works devoted to his faith, among them The Great Divorce, Screw Tape Letters. Jack had an eloquent way of making complex matters seem very simple. He also defended the faith from attacks and myths like the one we're talking about tonight. In Mere Christianity, one of, of the greatest works of, Christi uh, of, of apologetic Christianity that he wrote, he writes, There is no need to be worried by facetious people who try to make the Christian hope of heaven ridiculous by saying they do not want to spend an eternity playing harps. The answer to such people is if they cannot understand books written for grown-ups, they have no right reading them. All scriptural imagery, harps, crowns, gold, is of course merely symbolical, uh, a symbolical attempt to express the inexpressible. 
People who take these symbols literally might as well think that when Christ told us to be like doves, he meant that we were to lay eggs. If there's any question about his devotion to faith, one only has to look to Narnia, Jack's wondrous fantasy world. The following from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe introduces the Christ-like figure of Aslan. Aslan, Mr. Beaver said. Why, don't you know? He's the king. He's the lord of the whole wood. But not often here, you understand. Never in my time or my father's time. But word has reached us that he has come back. He is in Narnia at this moment. He'll settle the white queen, all right. He is, it is he, not you, that will save Mr. Tumnus. Is, is he a man, asked Lucy. Aslan a man, Mr. Beaver said sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he's the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is king of beasts? Aslan is a lion. The lion. The great lion. Oh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie. And make no mistake, said Mr. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either, either braver than most or just silly. John was a contemporary of C.S. Lewis and actually one of the main re reasons uh, C.S. Lewis converted to Christianity. John was, in fact, a lifelong, devout Roman Catholic. He worked for the Oxford English Dictionary. Several of his translations and academic lectures and essays are held with high esteem, uh, high esteem to this day. He was a code breaker in World War II. He was professor at Pembroke College in Oxford and later Merton College in Oxford. He was an author. At the turn of the century, when various groups compiled lists of the greatest authors of the millennium, John won every time. He beat out greats like Charles Dickens, Leo Tolstoy, Jane Austen, Joyce, Paust, and Balzac. This upset atheists in the literary world, but despite their anger, something about John drew people from all walks of life. John Roland Rue Tolkien, or J.R.R. Tolkien, author of The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings trilogy, didn't have to prove his faith. He lived it. You don't have to do much digging to see a man who loved Christ and loved the church. That's why he was attacked by, and still is, many, many literary atheists. Because there's no way to show that he wasn't a Christian and proud of it. He is the father of modern fantasy and given us most of what we know about halflings, elves, dwarves, wizards, and warriors. His books inspired Peter Jackson, the filmmaker, to produce three epic award-winning films, and now three more films based on The Hobbit start this Christmas. His faith brought depth, uh, depth to his work. So next time you read or hear, from ashes a fire shall be woken, a light from shadows shall spring, renewed shall be blade that was broken, the crownless again shall be king. Its meaning should be clear. Now I certainly don't consider myself in the same league as the aforementioned authors, but I did write a book, shameless plug, thank you. And I can testify that the more educated I became, the closer I became to Christ. Now, I grew up in a Christian household. I grew up in a household that valued learning and education above many things. 
Everyone in my family has collegiate degrees. Everyone in my family has taught professionally. Everyone in my family loves to read. I, I remember uh, just reading as a family, and I remember my mother reads. She's here tonight, both my parents are, reading to me every night. Stories from Narnia, stories from Tolkien. Harry Potter hadn't been written yet when I was little. But we've read all those together and, and many more since then. I attended Cornell College when I graduated high school. I received degrees in religion, psychology, and philosophy. I went to Garrett Evangelical Theological Seminary at Northwestern Campus in Evanston. And I received my 90-credit hour Master of Divinity degree. Since then, I read and I study and I do more continuing education than I possibly ever need to. And I consider myself well-learned and fairly intelligent. But I don't tell all of that to you to impress you. I tell it to you for two simple reasons. First, just because you excel in academia doesn't mean you'll become an atheist. Although several people go off to college and lose their faith, not because of the education they're receiving, but because of the support of the church they are lacking. Secondly, I want you to know that having a certain type of education or degrees doesn't make you a better Christian. getting there. Jumped ahead a little bit of me. It's okay. Now, there are smart Christians. I, I think I've given you some examples that you can wow your friends with as you uh, talk and as you disciple others, as you try to find others. But there are smart atheists. I don't agree with them, but I can't argue that they aren't intelligent or they aren't educated. Now, there are also stupid Christians. I know that, and you know that, because they are generally the loudest and easily spottable on the news. But there are tragically dumb atheists as well. And most of them appear on Cops and, you know, generally on, on some other television shows. The 5 o'clock news worldwide. It all comes to, down to the fact, uh, intelligent or not, that we have different gifts. Some have gifts for education and academia. Some do not. Our Christianity and what God considers wisdom and knowledge, however cannot be obtained through genetics or through higher places of learning. So what does it mean to be smart in God's eyes? James, the brother of Jesus, writes this in his letter. Are any of you wise and understanding? Show that your actions are good with a humble lifestyle that comes from wisdom. However, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, then stop bragging and living in ways that deny the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above. Instead, it's from earth, natural, demonic. Wherever there is jealousy and selfish ambition, there is disorder and everything that is evil. What of the wisdom from above? First, it is pure. And then it is peaceful, gentle, obedient, filled with mercy and good actions. Fair, genuine. Those who make peace sow the seeds of justice by their peaceful acts. James reminds us that wisdom 
is not about how much we know. It's about what we choose to do with that knowledge. It's also important to remember that we don't need to prove how smart we are. And we don't need to prove how logical our faith is because our faith isn't logical. It doesn't make sense. Paul writes in the letter to Corinthians, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are being destroyed, but it is the power of God for those of us who are being saved. It is written in Scripture, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. I will reject the intelligence of the intelligent. Where are the wise? Where are the legal experts? Where are today's debaters? God hasn't made wisdom of the world foolish. In God's wisdom, he determined that the world wouldn't come to know him through its own wisdom. Instead, God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of preaching. Jews ask for signs, Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, which is a scandal to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ is God's power and God's wisdom. This is because the foolishness, is wi- the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. People will always think Christians are stupid. People will always make fun of our faith because to those who choose not to believe, it is pretty foolish. We can show them that there are plenty of smart Christians, but in the end, we are not searching for earthly wisdom, but for that wisdom and knowledge that came to earth in the person of Jesus the Christ. After all, even the smartest human beings only use a limited part of their brain power. But even if we were to master our human minds, how insignificant would we be to the power and knowledge of God who knows and is all things? All of that being said, Christianity still means being devoted to learning. Remember in Acts 2, we talk about that often, the Acts 2 church, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings. Being Christian means that learning is a lifelong pursuit. But, being, uh, but it doesn't necessarily mean uh, going to schools and gaining degrees. It does for some. But for others, it might mean learning how to pray better and more intensely. It might be learning how to serve in a new and different way. It might mean learning about another cult- uh, country and its culture and its people so that you can be a missionary. It does mean for all of us, learning how to love God and love each other more and more each day. Now, I'm giving you tools to bust myths that people hold about Christianity, but we do so if and only if they are stumbling blocks to their potential faith. Timothy writes that, or Paul reminds this in his letter to Timothy. Run away from adolescent cravings. Instead, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace together with those who confess the Lord with a clean heart. Avoid foolish and thoughtless discussions, since you know that they will produce conflict. I'm going to stop there. I'm not giving you the information to bust these myths so that you can argue with your friends that don't believe. I'm giving it to you so that you can sit down, be educated, and have discussions that will help them in their life. Paul continues, 
God's slaves shouldn't be argumentative, but should be kind towards all people, able to teach, patient, and should correct opponents with gentleness. As you approach your family, your friends, people in your life, remember to do so patiently and gently. Perhaps God will change their minds and give them a knowledge of the truth. They may come to their senses and escape from the devil's trap that holds them captive to his will. Now, I want to leave you with a simple prayer, and I'm not sure, did it get in here? Yeah, it did. It's in your New Life Notes. I think it's going to be on the screen, too. I hope grab one of these because I want you to take this home. This is what I want you to leave with of this uh, with this time, with this time of worship, with this time of teaching. I want you to pray this prayer. And I want you to do it for two reasons. And it's gonna, it, this prayer is going to ask for two things. First, it's going to ask God to grant you knowledge of God and God's will for your life. That's something we need to pray every day. God, I want to see you in my life. God, I want to know your will for my life. You can never stop praying that because you can always see more of God and you can always understand God's will clearer. It also asks for wisdom, the wisdom you will need to live out Jesus' commandment to make disciples of all nations. And that is the focus of our ministry going into 2013, being discipled so that we can disciple others. I don't know anything more important than that commission. So I ask you, bring this home, pray it, live it, and I believe that God will give you the wisdom and the power and all the knowledge you need to do the work that he is calling you to do. I'm going to read this for you, and then we'll transition to our third part of our worship experience. Lord, help me grow in knowledge and wisdom. Give me knowledge that I may know you and your will for my life better each day. Give me wisdom that I may know how to best make disciples for your kingdom. Through the power of your Holy Spirit, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Let us transition now to the praise time of our worship experience where we uh, celebrate God. Oh, I'm sorry. We're busting that myth. There we go. It, it, we aren't stupid. That's what. Yeah, walk away with. Well, some of us are a little more stupid than others, but uh, can't drink water out of a cup. Uh, but you know, we'll figure that out. Uh, in a minute, we're going to collect uh, the offering for the night. It is a way that we honor God. It's a way that we build up our church through um, offering our gifts. So I encourage you to do that. I thank you if you have done that. If you are supporting of this church, uh, new new ministries. Uh, take resources and they also um, uh, need resources because they don't have uh, years of um, you know, funding uh, to support them. So thank you for all of your gifts. Uh, that being said, I'm going to uh, have a prayer. Uh, we're going to pray the Lord's Prayer together. We'll just do the traditional Lord's Prayer, so uh, I think it's going to be on the screen for you. Uh, and then uh, we will uh, be uh, praised and we will praise with divine impact uh, friends of New Life, and uh, we uh, thank them for being here as Jamie and our band have the night off. Uh, we thank uh, DI for coming and sharing their ministry with us. So let us pray. Lord, by the peace you offer us, we pray. Continue to bless those of us who have not seen, yet still believe in you. 
that we may share your peace with others. Bless those of us who at this time cannot see, but need your presence in our lives so that we, too, may be able to share in your peace. Grant your peace to those of us who are closest to you, those uh, who have shown your mercy and grace time and time again, that we may show that same compassion and love to others. As your breath rests upon this world, help each of us receive your Holy Spirit wherever in life we may be. We pray that all of us who gather together as the church, whether at New Life or across the globe, may share in that unity and peace that you share with us through your Holy Spirit. We ask that those who are not part of this body or not part of the church at all may know your peace this day. We pray for those who are powerful, leading the affairs of this world and leading our nation, that they may act out of peace and justice for all people. We pray for those who are weak, those whom your ministry should affect the most, those who suffer at the hands of oppressors and the oppression of sin that consumes our hearts and the world. Today, show your greatness to the whole of creation, that whether we see or cannot see, we may still know you in our hearts and work towards closer relationships with you as our Lord and our God. We pray this in your name through Jesus Christ, in whom we have life, praying the prayer that he taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. 